0: Hey, y'all. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is your Mr. of Science, Eddie. Um, So I just wanted to go ahead and do a quick, like, little office hour session really quick, um, just to kind of clarify a few things I said in the previous podcast. Uh, Before I begin, I do want to apologize for the first two being about an hour long, what I call the college lecture time. Um, I just got carried away with these lecture notes, and I just felt a lot of this information was very important to get out there. Um, Going forward, I do plan to limit podcasts to roughly about 30 minutes just to make it uh, more easily digestible. Um, And I I feel it'll probably help absorb the information more so there's not so much information overload. So again, I do apologize, and going forward, I am going to focus on trimming them down a little bit. Um, So that's going to be the focus right now as I'm developing Lecture 2, an intro to infectious disease. Um, But right now, I just want to take a few minutes just to clarify a few things. Um, I felt I... Could have been a little bit cleared about in the first two lectures. Um, So, to begin with, I did discuss how, uh, in the context of the coronavirus, that uh, most, if not all, of them uh, originated in bats and how bats don't get sick. Um, So, that's why we call bats reservoirs. They're not, they're in, they're colonized, not necessarily infected. Um, So, Really what happens here is that the host and the pathogen co-evolve with each other. Um, So if you think about it, it's not really smart for any pathogen to kill its host. So over the course of, you know, evolutionary time, there's going to be this natural attenuation. Um, And it's not unheard of. There actually is a case like that in Australia, uh, way back when they actually tried controlling um, an overgrowth of the certain kind of rabbit. So they actually did introduce... A, uh, a lethal virus, a virus lethal to the rabbits, into that, into that wild population. And it worked in the beginning, but then they started to see this attenuation that the rabbits weren't getting as sick as they were, and they weren't dying off as quickly, if at all. So <clears throat> with pathogens, you do see this co-evolution. Um, I guess a really good example maybe with humans would be... Um, the STIs, the sexually transmitted infections that we have, chlamydia and gonorrhea, they tend to be asymptomatic but they're still there. Um, so I, I got kind of hints of that natural attenuation we do see over time. So that's just one point of clarification. The second point of clarification is when we're referring to um, I guess the, uh, the pathogenesis of uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, I mentioned how it you know, starts in the nose and travels way down. And so we can correlate that with the severity of symptoms. So really in the nose, we can imagine that maybe as the asymptomatic carriers, it's more limited up there and you just may have that loss of taste or smell. Um, More so the loss of smell contributes to the loss of taste. And then as it goes lower, you start seeing those more um, constitutional symptoms like the dry cough when it hits the upper respiratory tract, you know, in your throat, Um, the fever from that as well, you know, the... um, Feeling down, you know, feeling fatigued, and then once it hits the lower low respiratory tract, is when you're kind of in that danger zone now of the viral pneumonia, which can set you up for that secondary bacterial infection, um, and possibly, you know, <clears throat> go in to acute respiratory distress. Um, so when I did talk about acute respiratory distress, I did mention that it's kind of unusual in COVID that you see it later and not sooner. Um, so when the research I was doing is that. Excuse me, in other uh, respiratory infections, you tend to see acute respiratory distress early on in the infections. That's not the case in COVID. Um, So, it was, you, you notice the ARDS developing COVID patients when they start having that immune response come through, when they start producing those antibodies. And so the thought was, hey, maybe this ARDS is not really the virus itself, it's the immune system. So as I mentioned in, in the first part of the lecture, that's why uh, dexamethasone was kind of very appealing because it was a, a, glucor, a glucocorticoid steroid that can suppress that immune response perhaps and help improve the outcomes in these really critical patients. And then another point of clarification with the pre-existing conditions, as well as the age, um, there is you know an age-related decline in organ function, and pre-existing conditions either can reduce the uh, capacity of an organ to respond to stress, or it can lead to damage in other organs. So the example I gave was having, uh, like COPD, for example, uh, chronic bronchitis, emphysema. with that you really your lungs already struggle as it is to kind of function normally. And then we add the stress of COVID on top of that. It's kind of like this compounded um, lung issue where you severely then reduce the capacity for your lungs to respond to stress, which can lead to complications and all that. And then with the age, it's just, you know, as you age, things just naturally break down. That's the way it is. So it again, it reduces that organ's capacity to respond to stress as it should. And then, let's see, there was another point of clarification I wanted to make. Oh yes, the incubation periods. So as I said, the incubation periods, it's when you're exposed, to when you start showing symptoms and not necessarily that you're going to be able to transmit before you show symptoms but again you can still also transmit symptoms um, before you uh, sorry you can still transmit the the pathogen even before you display symptoms but not all the time um, so it's it's there's really no hard or fast rule it really comes down to the type of pathogen you're talking about. Uh, So in terms of COVID, you are infectious a few days before you start showing these symptoms. And then the last points of clarification come along with uh, the vaccines. So as I mentioned, there are several types of vaccines and a huge point about vaccine development is that you try to develop a vaccine that is going to be most useful to the patient. Um, so some vaccines may require you to induce an immune response most similar to natural, natural infection, and that's where you have your live attenuated vaccines come in. Um, so as I said, you know you kind of you do actually infect your patient, and they respond as natural as possible, and so that pretty gives you that gives you the best immunity. But there are drawbacks to that, as I mentioned. Uh, you really don't want to give these vaccines to really sick people who, um, if by some off chance the attenuated uh, strain reverts back into its normal virulent self. Um, I also keep talking about the term virulence. I do not know if I clarified that in one of, my, in one of the lectures. Um, but when we talk about, uh, when we say pathogenicity, that's the ability to cause disease. But when we talk about virulence, it's more the severity of disease. So you can have a pathogen that produces a mild illness or a pathogen that produces a very severe illness. So we'd say the first pathogen is less virulent then the second pathogen. So just another point of clarification there. Um, And then I did mention, you know, the dead vaccines, the subunit vaccines, how those are just more uh, effective for producing more of an antibody response. And that's fine. Um, Sometimes the antibodies is really all you need. Uh, You probably apply these more to bacterial infections and those caused by toxins produced by bacteria, such as uh, the tetanus toxin. Now, I also really didn't, Discuss why Johnson and Johnson's only doing one inoculation for their vaccination program. Um, I, I was looking at their website right now, actually, and they will investigate two doses down the road. Um, my thought right now is to one dose. It may just be a logistical thing. If you think about it, you're able then to expand the vaccine supply if you're able to get a high enough efficacy, and then that term again, efficacy. Just remember, it's not the number of cases that were prevented. It's the relative reduction in risk of becoming sick or being infected when you take the vaccine. And as I've mentioned, um, these uh, candidate vaccines, they're not so much focused on uh, looking for if you were not infected. They're more concerned right now about preventing severity of disease. The one that may provide some data uh, against infection um, would be AstraZeneca Oxford because they were swabbing the patients during the, uh, they were swabbing the participants during their vaccine trials. So I believe there may be some data put out there to show maybe, hey, it was pretty good at actually preventing infection. And when I say infection, it's not symptomatic infection, it's asymptomatic infection, um, which is a large concern right now about coronavirus. Um, I actually came across this news story about a day or two ago saying that only roughly 13% of people may be displaying symptoms of COVID when they are actively infected. So, um, again, asymptomatic, asymptomatic transmission is the huge concern with coronavirus right now. Um, now, I really didn't go over why you would need two vaccines. I'm sure that a lot of us are familiar with the booster shots we have when we were little. Or if you're you know, a parent right now, you are becoming familiar with booster shots for your children um, for their childhood vaccines. So the first shot um, really just primes your immune response. It, it, it kind of sets the stage, um, <clears throat> but you may not really have it really finely tuned enough. Um, You may not even have a high enough what's called antibody titer, which means you have a really high number of circling antibodies in your system. So that's where the second shot comes in. And you see this more with um, your dead vaccines, subunit vaccines. Um, so, what that second shot does it it reintroduces that pathogen or whatever you 're targeting against to the body, and it reinitiates that immune response so then now you have a higher level of circling antibody. Not only that, you actually start fine tuning your antibodies more and i 'll get into this when I do the immune um, response lecture slash office hour um, but in a nutshell, you create stronger antibodies with that booster, so they more effectively bind uh, your target and clear it better, clear it faster. Um, and and just one more point of clarification. Um, two more, actually. Then we're done here. Um, so vaccines do take some time to work. It's not instantaneous. Um, the only thing that works instantaneous in your immune response is what's called the innate immunity. Uh, that we'll get into that later. But when it comes to adaptive immunity, to your antibody response, to your um, you know your T cell mediated response, it takes about two weeks to develop, which is why. Uh, you might, uh, or I'm going to say this fear-mongering amongst some people, like, oh my gosh, this person got vaccinated and they died. Well, you know, <clears throat> they died from uh, COVID. Well, they didn't have that time to develop that, uh, that uh, sufficiently strong enough immune response to prevent severe disease or even the infection itself. Um, And now that I've mentioned it, people dying after the vaccine, that could be correlation and not necessarily causation. So please do uh, take a step back and think about those kind of news stories that are put out there. There are disclaimers in some of these news stories, but as we all know, some outlets may not necessarily mention that. Um, So there was this one case uh, this past week, I believe, where uh, I believe she was a 70 or 80 year old woman who got vaccinated and then she died. Of course, some news outlets may take that as like, oh, you know, it was the vaccine that caused it. But you read into it more, she had underlying conditions, uh, more specifically, a type of heart condition. So she could have pretty much dropped dead at any moment. It just happened to have been after the vaccine. And then I also discussed the concept of this carryover immunity. Um, So there is a lot of fear that these vaccines may not work against the variants. Um, But there are some slowly changing sites on, these vir- on the spike protein that we are developing these vaccines against. And like I said, when you do and induce an immune response, it's not monoclonal. It's not one type of antibody that's produced. It's not one type of T cell that's produced or selected for, I should say. Um, you have many. So you're able to target many things on the pathogen. And that's just the way our immune system evolved because it would be very inefficient to only have one type of response because you really wouldn't have any immunological memory, and it it just would be a really bad type of immune system, and nature would not really select for that, Um, and so yeah, so that's pretty much the clarifications I did want to make um, on the lecture, so uh, yeah, that's it for office hours right now. Um, I would appreciate you all turn, tuning into uh, lecture number two. That's going to be an, uh, an overview and introduction to what an infectious disease is. And I'm currently developing right now, and I, do have to ho- I hope to have that out for you guys um, this Sunday. Well, that is my goal, to have it out this Sunday. And then um, from there, we're going to jump into um, basically what the immune response is, how pathogens outsmart it or evade it. Um, and then I'm going to start discussing pathogen evolution, what's a really cool topic within and of itself. So I do hope you guys have a fantastic day, and I'll see you all in lecture next time.